In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 13 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Philbig Napoleon Herriot, and let's start the show by taking a look in the email vault. Well, today, Justin got in touch to point out that anyone interested in Traveller version 5, it's been released and includes the Errata from 2012 as a PDF on drive-through RPG. That's pretty good news considering the bad reception the amount of errata in the printed version of T5 got when it was released. And yet, despite all that, I'm going to put this PDF onto my buy list. But of course, I'm still saving up for the Mongoose version at the moment. David also dropped me a line to say that he plays Traveller by drafting rules from the various versions. I've not actually heard of anyone else doing that before, so that's quite intriguing. I wonder which rules he pulls from which version. I bet he's taken the skill rolls from Mongoose. George also got in touch with a few questions. In a recent episode, I mentioned that using Highguard gives your character more skills. And George asks if I've played a game with mixed careers in it. The straight answer to that is yes, I have. And from an in-play point of view, I've not had any problems at all. They're completely compatible. From a player point of view, though, not so great. Characters from the extended books tend to be more capable than the core rules characters. At least at the table, they seem to be. They have more of the level 2 skills, which are a major benefit over the level 1s. My preference now, though, is to have all basic PCs, or all extended books PCs. But if given a choice, I always opt for the core book PCs. They're just so simple and quick to produce. George also asked how I handle computers. Are they modern, easy to use, or are they difficult to use in my games? Difficult is the simple answer. Many of you listeners are far too young to remember life before Google and the other search engines. In those days, research was difficult, even with internet access. The net was really like a library, tons of info and no index. No quick way to find what you wanted. And that's how traveller computers are in my games. They're great at shooting when the shooting software is loaded, but pretty naff when it comes to general purpose computing. They're big and bulky for a reason, and that's probably because they're full of cogs and tubes and bells and whistles and whatnot. They don't make research computing easy. Rolling computer use on library data is about knowing what questions to ask, and even then getting the sorry does not compute in response. Neil dropped me a line too. I think he may have been upset by my crying during the last episode. He went to the recent UK Games Expo and found a few things to excite the traveller player there. The British Isles Traveller Support Group had a trade stand there apparently, and he even found a few games of Traveller being played. So there's life in the old dog yet. He also pointed out the Freelance Traveller website and magazine, which I'll be chatting about in the next episode. So that's it for email. Thanks to Neil, George, David and Justin for getting in touch. On to the next segment. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is the My Galaxy segment where I tell you about one of the planets in the Tercesso subsector. 
A map and planetary UPPs for Tessesso Subsector can be found on the show's website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Today we're looking at Mamaros, a world of middling size and frankly not a lot to commend it to visitors. The entire planet is owned by the Indes Corporation and serves as a private residence for the corporation's executives and their immediate families. It seems that some live here and others use it as a sort of a retreat. The population of the planet rarely grows above a hundred or so, except when workers are brought in for a particular building project. The atmosphere is unbreathable and contains a large concentration of argon mixed with nitrogen and hydrogen. There is a lot of water in the extremely active atmosphere, which tends to keep the land masses constantly wet. However, The water and the air, in its natural state, is undrinkable and unsuitable for standard refining for starship fuel. The planet does have a number of lower indigenous life forms, but none of the higher forms, and a thriving collection of diverse flora, especially in the equatorial regions. As you might expect, the residences of the Indes Megacore executives are grand in design. There were, at the last survey, 15 habitation domes on the surface. These are extremely large and encompass what would be considered larger states on any other world. Within each dome large houses exist, surrounded by standard Terran flora and fauna. One dome is reputed, although not confirmed, to contain an indoor lake that is so large that tidal forces act upon it like a sea. A grade B starport services the planet, and acts as a refuelling point for transiting starships. However, the planet itself is off-limits to visitors, and a couple of guard boats patrol the system to enforce this prohibition. Recent news broadcasts from across the subsector have noted how Indes executives from various planets have disappeared without notice. Some have theorised that they may be meeting on Mamoros for some nefarious purpose, a suggestion strenuously denied by the Indes press corps. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. It's time for a story seed. Today's is all about the Varga. Varga Town is the common name for a relatively small area in the city of Neosandum. Varga Town got its name for the number of Varga that live in the area, a strange situation in imperial space. The planet itself is in human space and the city of Neosandum is a human habitation. The city is enclosed in a dome as the planet's atmosphere is unbreathable. The Varga community are the descendants of a small fleet of Varga freebooters who were cornered by the navy and marooned on this planet amongst the very people that they had been raiding. That, however, was a number of generations ago and things now are pretty normalised. Apart from those crews, Other Varga from nearby systems have tended to find their way to Varga Town, so as to be amongst their own kind. The community is not a run-down area, but nor is it a well-to-do area. There is pretty much full employment, and the Varga embrace the curiosity of their human neighbours and run a number of tourist-based businesses, including a well-known and well-loved brand of plush soft toy Vargas called the Varga Babies. Like most societies, there is a darker underbelly of illegal activity, including some pit fighting between Varga and human opponents. 
there are many domes on the world other than Neosandum, most of them run by independent farmers raising the jewel-hard beasts that are raised for their fur and their meat. Many of the farmers use dogs to help keep control of their jewel-hard, and of course that need for dogs has caused the business of puppy farming to appear in one of the domes. Carl Pointeau is such a puppy farmer, and he is the one who is looking for someone to guard his dome farm and find those responsible for the recent raid. A few days ago, someone broke into his dome and stole all of his breeding animals, some of which were extremely valuable. The poor quality security cam in the public airlock of his dome showed some vac-suited individuals enter the lock before they covered the camera. From studying the few seconds of video, Kyle is convinced that at least one of the vac-suits had a tail, so he's convinced that the raiders were the Varga. It seems that Kyle has recently had some bad press when a worker secretly took footage of him throwing a newborn, malformed pup into a recycler. Although unpleasant, this action was not illegal. However, it did create a lot of outrage in the press. There are a number of possible people responsible for this raid. There have been articles in the press where Varga representatives have said that they mortally object to the use of dogs as slaves. Animal rights activists appeared in the press objecting to the concept of a puppy farm at all. Angry individuals have appeared on the TV, ranting and making threats against Kyle. And to top it all, Kyle is recently divorced, and the split had been rather acrimonious. His wife was a full working partner in the farm, so she would know how to establish a new farm and make the best use of the missing animals. No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is the rules talk section, where I talk about rules. Hmm. I thought for today's show, I'll talk about travel times in the Traveller universe. Right off the bat, in the books, it says something very interesting. Interplanetary travel is rare because of the time it takes. But inter-system travel is more frequent. Considering that inter-system jump takes at least a week, that's quite a thing to say. The rules go on to say that travelling from planet to a safe jump distance takes only around five hours, so that gives you a jump time of one week plus about ten hours to get to any other system. A bit of googling suggests that Saturn averages a distance of 1.2 billion kilometres from us on Earth. And using the 1G acceleration rules calculation given in Book 2 Starships, with a midpoint turnaround, this would take about seven and a half days to journey, which is very close to the time it would take you to jump to another system. If you double the acceleration to 2G, with all the accompanying extra wear and tear and stresses on the Starship's frame, etc., and of course on the people inside, you only knock off two days from the journey time but may well have shortened the life of the extremely expensive engines and starship itself. Considering that Earth and Saturn are not the furthest apart planets in the system, and both have relatively stable orbits that shows time-wise it makes as much sense to jump to another system as to travel to a local planet. I'm pretty sure the fuel cost, if figured in, would make that intra-system journey more economically viable. So that got me wondering what effect those economies would have on travel and colonisation. 
normal traveller universe has one inhabited planet in each system. Does that make sense, though? If you jump into a new system, you'd do a survey and set up a colony on the one planet that most meets your needs, and that, whether that's colonisation or mining, you'd pick that one place to focus your attention. You might set up other mines or factories on the other worlds for subsidiary needs that could not be met in system. Yet the travel time to the other worlds in the same system make the man-hour cost of the travel pretty expensive. You'd have to compare the cost of that travel against the cost of jumping in your additional needs from other systems, where it's available on a planet close to the jump point. Setting up a mine on a local planet would make sense in the early days of colonisation, I guess, if the system is not well-travelled and cargo is not being shipped through. But once a system is well-established, maybe on an ex-boat route, the costs of product shipped by large cargo haulers could easily undercut the local cost of travelling or retrieving from a planet in your current system. Now, I had thought when I started thinking about this that the Traveller universe didn't really make much economic sense. But once you've got these established colonies and these established trade routes, these make the travel times and the travel costs much less significant when jumping as opposed to when in-system. Anyway, I tend to think that the Traveller's Imperium does actually make sense, or at least I can rationalise it. Ah, damn piece of junk! Who bought this anyway? <clears throat> no, no, don't you dare say it was me. Today's review is over the Tarsus, the world beyond the frontier, which apparently came as a box set in its original incarnation. Sadly, I don't have that. I have the PDF version which combines it all into one digital file. The original was published in 1983, and this appears to be a scan of the first printing. The cover certainly shows signs of wear, but the inside contains some very reasonable quality scans that I can both read and search. The premise of this module is that it presents a world for you to adventure on and around. It details the world quite graphically. Starting from the system and the star it orbits, it quickly dives into the various regions of the planet itself and the terrain types it includes. There's a small black and white map of the world which, I might add, it duplicates in colour at a larger scale at the back of the PDF. In good traveller style it goes on to provide animal encounter tables for all the different terrain types. The tables are quite bland in the usual traveller style. It would have been nice to see each animal type named, for instance. The encounter, however, on each table is quite good, original and rather inventive. You also get an extensive history of the planet and how that fits into the Imperial Historic Timeline. This is a very interesting read as it follows through with the history and topography you've already worked through and looked at in here and it feeds into the current government organisation of the planet that comes to be described in the later sections. It also goes on to give you details of the military and the police forces on the planet and then gives you a pretty good library section. Next up on page 26, there are some system summaries with details about the other planetary bodies and the seasons and behaviour of the Tarsus system itself. The PDF then goes through a bit of a change. I'm guessing this is where it moves from one physical booklet to the next. And it's here that the book becomes an adventure module rather than a reference book. 
The first adventure starts as a mystery on a ranch that quickly becomes a murder mystery for the PCs to solve. This is pretty involved and well laid out. It's a mini-adventure that I really admire. Once they've solved this adventure, you can move on to another adventure, and then yet another. All of them are interesting, and sufficient for two or more sessions, I should think. I really like these, although if you want to play them out of order, you may have to do some shuffling around with timelines. Next is a large scan of what I think were individual cards included in the box set, each one being a character for use in play. Then comes the large-scale colour map of the world, and then a topographical colour map of the region covered by the adventures, and then a subsector map and statistics for District 268, which is a subsector in the extended part of the marches. I was amused by the pages in this PDF, marked as this page intentionally left blank, which of course means it's not blank. But apart from that wry smile, um, I was delighted by this PDF. It was filled with great data, making this feel like a real world, and the adventures provided seemed better than some of the actual adventure modules that I've read in the past. In summary, I thought it was well worth the money for this digital version. I recommend it. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where we take a look at another animal from somewhere in the Imperium. A common name for today's animal is the killer room, derived from the words killer mushroom. It's an apt name for such a strange creature that does indeed look like a mushroom and that kills hundreds of people every year. Unlike some other mushrooms, it's not through eating the killer room that people die. It's the other way around. Like many life forms, the killer room has a number of stages and a number of forms that it passes through during its life cycle. It starts as an airborne spore, settles like a seed, spreads and grows like a mycel, but from that point it starts to become unusual. When conditions are suitable, the life form sprouts what appears to be a normal fungal fruiting body, a grey, roughly spherical, half-inch in diameter bulb. This, however, is merely the next phase of its life. The sphere itself sprouts tendrils which it then uses to move. The round body pops free of the stem and using these tendrils, the sphere rolls itself around the ground and surprisingly is capable of climbing up even a vertical surface. In the wild, the killer room seeks out any static animal. Any sleeping or hibernating animal is a suitable candidate. And when one is found, the tendrils change from being a form of locomotion to being a way of pushing a type of spore into the sleeping animal. The injected spore grows rapidly through a series of root-like growths that push between the host cells. The roots grow rapidly, often able to complete a pass through an animal entirely within half an hour. These roots then start feeding on the animal, which at that point is doomed. The result is a mushroom-like growth on the animal's body, sometimes forming a few inches across. Within 24 hours, this mushroom will grow up to six inches in height before blossoming and throwing out a whole new generation of airborne spores. On its homeworld, the killer room has a very bad reputation amongst the populace, but is considered fascinating by the scientific community. The reason for the killer room's bad reputation 
is the number of human deaths it has caused, and those that it causes yearly. The mobile portion of its life cycle has repeatedly brought it into contact with sleeping individual humans. Campers, people sleeping outside, and even some young children have been infested by the killer room. For adults, this is most often not lethal, but for smaller children, it can easily be fatal as their systems become quickly overwhelmed. Remote properties often erect small electric fences or laser zappers to keep killer room away from the property, and those sleeping out of doors should take precautions to keep themselves safe from this little beast. The export of the killer room and its spores is strictly prohibited under the Imperial Dangerous Native Species Control Orders Setup. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're cold? The spacer in the corner booth. Don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? It's the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? The thousands of channels. Crookwatch. And now it's time to take a look at another person of interest. Dr. Sally Ganache is a human that has earned a special place in the hearts of the Varga race. Dr. Sally is a biological researcher. A few years ago, he was part of a research team that was collecting samples from every planet and moon in an unsettled system called Falag. The mission was sponsored by a nearby settled system that was looking for a new territory to be claimed and settled. The mission was scheduled to take five years and was to include not only sample collection, but also analysis of those samples during that five-year period. The starship they used was a specially modified colony vessel that had sufficient room to support such an extended mission. After a year spent in systematic work collecting and analysing, they moved on to the next subject's body, a moon that orbited the fifth planet from the star. The scientific crew were very excited about starting work on the moon as their initial visual observations showed a large moon that had a thriving ecosystem, the first such discovery in this system. The doctor was on the moon's surface collecting soil and rock samples from a small forest when he came across a starship half buried in the ground. Its upper surface was overgrown and that was what had kept it hidden up to this point. After returning to the ship to log the discovery, they did some research on the vessel they had found and discovered that it was registered to a Varga entrepreneur and that it was listed as missing some 150 years earlier. On returning to the surface, Dr. Sally found evidence that someone had been to the site of his discovery. Following the trail, he found it led to a small Varga village of some 128 Varga, the descendants of the crew who had survived the crash. From a purely anthropological point of view, the discovery of a lost Varga tribe was a huge find, and the Doctor could have been made for life on that discovery alone. However, Dr. Sally is a consummate professional, and wasn't prepared to give up his research. The research project was, however, over. The discovery of an existing colony, even one cut off and technologically backward, meant that the system was effectively claimed by the Varga and of no further use to the system that was funding this mission. The mission overseer called an end to the mission and wanted to withdraw from the system and return to their home system. Rightly, the overseer realised that the existence of this alien colony meant that the issue was now political and legal rather than purely scientific. 
Dr. Sully refused to leave the surface of the moon. It found that the small colony was suffering terribly from a number of biological sources. Sickness was rife amongst the Varga and their lifespan much shorter than was normal. Thus it was that Dr. Sully was marooned on the moon with his scientific equipment and supplies for a year when the research ship finally left. Dr. Sully fully expected to be back in touch with the modern world when a rescue ship was sent back to pick up himself and the Varga. However, the scientific ship was never heard of again. What happened to it has been theorised about, but no one actually knows for sure. Dr. Sally's expected maximum of one year on the planet turned into ten before another ship entered the system. However, he had not wasted that time. Starting by befriending the Varga, he followed that up with investigation into the various infections and diseases that had been affecting them. He even established treatments for most of them, thereby making the lives of the lost tribe much better. He also spent a lot of time in noting how the colony had progressed as the technology failed and they had to rely on themselves. His cultural notes have since become one of the de facto work studies in cultural academic courses. With the arrival of another ship, communication was re-established and a Varga ambassador dispatched to the lost colony. The Varga on the moon praised the work of Dr. Sali greatly, and the Varga ambassador presented him with a virtual membership of the prestigious Varga Scientific University World, Arc 2. On a visit to Arc 2 some years later, Dr. Sali accepted a residency and continued his work into Varga diseases amongst the Varg themselves. My God, sir, they've launched a missile. It's, it's tracking. Have they now? Don't fret, Thane. I've got something special to handle that. Lancelot, activate my special defensive feature. It's time for a little flash fiction, this time written by Felbrig Herriot. Oh, by me. This story's called The Lost World. It started just like all the other obscure diseases, down south in the equatorial jungles. The experts reckoned it had been spreading amongst the indigenous populations for about 60 days before any civilised people cottoned on to it. The reason it was so good at spreading was its incubation period. We'd had airborne infections before, knew how to deal with them. We'd even had viruses that were as infectious as T7. But T7 was a whole new ball game. When someone had it, they showed no symptoms for about 30 days. Only then would they start to feel a little off-colour. After another week, they knew they were ill, and one more week, and they were dead. Bad, huh? But that wasn't the worst of it. From the first day they were infected, they were also infectious. Every cough, every sneeze, and yes, every single breath was laden with T7. Anyone in a room with a T7 carrier was odds-on to be a carrier too by the time they left the room. One breath would be enough to infect everyone on a shuttle. Only not one of them would know about it. And they'd go home, infect everyone there. Then they'd go to school, to work. Bam! Everyone's infected. Tick. Tock. Time rolls on, and then they get sick and everyone around them gets sick. 
and nine out of ten of them die. It's not a bad death, as death goes. Just a week of sneezes, maybe a bit of coughing, and then your heart stops. Tick-tock, stop. Then the real problem started. Too many dead to bury. Rotting bodies everywhere, diseases from that too. But nobody's organised, no one's left to get the survivors together, get them organised. Those that manage to get some kind of group together have even more trouble. Sure, before everyone dies, some of their power stations are set to cool off, but most aren't. They stayed running for a week, maybe two, and then they started popping. Boom. Meltdown everywhere at once. And no one left to do a damn thing about it. And then radiation. Groups of survivors dropping from the hot rain. Hell, there was other stuff out there too. Research labs, I guess, doing who knows what. Their doors popping open and whatever was in there run straight out the door. And what does the almighty Imperium do? What does the high and mighty all-powerful Navy do? Embargo, that's what. Quarantine. No food drops. No doctors. Nothing. A world. An entire world. And they did nothing. So, here I am. Sitting in a blasted cave on the beach. Alone, afraid of meeting any other survivors. And recording this story for someone. Anyone who might find it. I have two weeks food. And only a day's water left from what I collected before this whole thing got going. And when I leave this cave for more supplies... Water first, I suppose. I don't know what's going to happen. Dirty water? Fallout? God. Maybe a survivor will shoot me. I've heard a lot of shooting out there. But not for a few weeks. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so we've reached the end game once again. And as usual, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions, segment items, or stories, send them into behindtheclaw at outlook.com. This podcast is released on an attribution, non commercial, no derivatives license. Its home on the web is at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump. <laughs>